there's a point at which people reach a level of financial success where they're in control of their time and they're making enough that they are comfortable and their family is comfortable whether like there's no number where it's worth giving up they almost detach themselves from the idea of wanting money and wanting more there's an entire generation of americans who no longer care about prestige titles work travel fancy offices and lunches welcome to mundane millionaires a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters family community quality of life and cash flows in each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Mundane Millionaires. Kevin, we had Sean O'Dowd on the pod and it was fun. Sean's, he's an interesting guy. He's a consultant. Yeah, such we a fascinating about- path to entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in our world, we, I mean, we think about path to entrepreneurship being go buy a business, right? Which is already a little atypical. I think the average person that thinks path to entrepreneurship, like you go, start a business, right? You start a store, you start a restaurant. So we're already even a little atypical of like, hey, there's a different way you could go buy a business. And then you got Sean that's like, hey, there's a different way you could quit your job and literally just start consulting with the skills you have and make an incredible living. It's such a fascinating idea right. and story. And I, you know, to be honest with you, I had seen him in a number of different forums on YouTube and on Twitter talking about this idea that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. I'm going to make 5k by the end of the month. And I thought, no way, you know, you're out of touch. You're a a Boston consulting group, alumni consultant, like, yeah, for sure. You're going to be able to do that. But you know, could I do that? Could Joe main street do that? And I, I think, you know, we pushed him pretty hard on it. And I think he got really specific and concrete. And I, towards the end, I started thinking, Hey, maybe I'll, leave the law firm and go do some consulting, you know, Whoa, so. easy, easy there, turbo, but no, like I, I take your point. Cause it, it, it makes the use case so ubiquitous. Right. And, yeah. and we talked about that. Like, well, uh, like you said, we pushed a little bit harder, right? Like, okay, easy for the, you know, Wharton or Harvard or Stanford MBA that's, you know, been working at McKinsey to say like, yeah, just quit your job and go consult. But what about, you know, what about that guy next door, right? That's been yeah. Yeah. working mid-level management at some corporate job. That's been a skilled tradesman. That's been a stay-at-home mom or dad. You know, yep. whatever. Yeah. And and his response was just so eye-opening. Of of like, you know, a, a lot of things that people will hire these outside consultants on are things that aren't otherwise ordinarily going to get done because they don't have time and bandwidth. Yeah, yeah. So if they can pay someone to do it and make a return greater than what they paid someone to do it, it's a no brainer. Right. right. And, and, and anyone has skills that someone will pay for when you put it in those terms. And it's just to- totally mind blowing, eye opening. Very. Yeah. I, I loved when he talked about, you know, getting that first job, you know, cause you know, you go out, you like his mom was a librarian, you know, and he, he spun her up a consultancy and she's making great money. And, you know, but I, you know, I'm an M&A attorney. Can I go do that? How would I get that first job? And right. so it was, it was cool to hear him kind of drill down on the strategy. A little and also bit. a good reminder that like 
entrepreneurship also isn't always the most glamorous thing either, right? Because his point there was like, you got to get the reps and it may not be the coolest job. It's not going to be the most high paying job, right? And we talk about this in entrepreneurship all the time. Like if you're going to be CEO of a commercial cleaning company, like at some point you're going to be on site in a client's place at 10 o'clock at night, scrubbing toilets. Like you just are, that's, yeah. that's part of entrepreneurship. And it was so interesting to hear kind of that same variation of that message in the consulting world of like, you know, yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be willing to put in the dues. You gotta get that first job. You gotta get those first reviews and it may not be the coolest, like most sophisticated, you know, high paying consulting gig, but as you start to get those reps and build your business, right. The, the possibilities are limitless, really uh, limited only by time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the guy riding in his car to work that is looking for something different out of life. We've got something special for you on this one. So hope everybody enjoys. Absolutely. Enjoy guys. So Sean, where do, where do you live? Where's is Chicago home? Yeah. So I'm, I'm in Chicago. I'm really, I, I say Chicago. It's really Chicago suburbs. I have the two kids. So we, we, we left downtown cause you know, downtown Chicago can be not super friendly for the young kids. <laughs> so we're, we're about 30, 40 minutes North of the city right now. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, are you a city, a city guy or a suburbs guy? I know this is hotly debated. I go back and forth. I I like I like the city because just you know stuff to do, but the suburbs are nice for the like three four months a year when Chicago is not covered in snow. I live it. <laughs> I live in the area where if you've seen Home Alone, I yeah. live in the town where Home Alone was filmed. So like the the actual house okay. is like not that far away. So it's like quiet. There's trees. It's it's a nice spot to walk around and and do stuff outside with the kids, which can't really complain from there. So it's, yeah, it's true. We, we, so I grew up in Michigan, so I know exactly what you're talking mm. about. Kevin went to school at Michigan too. So you yep. spent three years in Ann Arbor and Michigan. So I always joke that the Midwest is amazing in the summertime, but those five days, they go by <laughs> fast. Cause it, it is hit or miss, but it's a cool place. How are you, you, are you born and raised in Chicago or, or you're just leftover refuge from a corporate life or? or <laughs> so it's, it's a crazy story. So I, but by the time I went to college, I had moved 22 times. So oh, wow. yeah. 22. Right? So 22. So I, I was born in the Chicago area. I was born in Evanston. It's uh, where Northwestern okay. is for, for college football fans. So I was born in Evanston the day that Northwestern football knocked off the Michigan Wolverines at home, nationally ranked team, whatever. So my uh, Northwestern alumni, huge football fan, grandfather took it as a sign that I was going to be like Northwestern's first Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. <laughs> Didn't happen. But I ended up, so I moved every single year of my life growing up wow. and then ended up in Chicago after graduation, working at a big consulting firm, and then ended up marrying a girl who we live in her now hometown, hometown that she lived her entire life in. So we're here okay. and probably Art. here for a while, but the the warm weather calls me. You guys are doing it right. You guys have the warm weather going on. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. We are doing it right. I'm not going to argue with you, Sean. We actually bought, last year we bought a little lake house. Our family has a has owned some lake houses for 70 years in a part of Michigan. So we're trying to split the difference, actually kind of capture those five days, but then also be in Florida the rest of the year. So I feel like Michigan football, Kevin, just as an aside, Michigan football has more stories of them losing games they shouldn't lose than they have stories of actually winning. <laughs> games you, you notice that only to non-michigan fans yeah <laughs> we have we have plenty of fantastic game stories but everyone else has you know you remember that one time 
Yeah. Appalachia State, man. That was a great yeah. game. <laughs> yes. Dude, and, la- and last year, who who was it that App State, was it A&M last year? Like, again, I was like, yeah, holy yeah. shit, with App State. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> they're like the they're like the ringer team every every yeah. few years. You want a hard yeah, story? That was brutal. That was my, um, I think that was my first year of law school or maybe second. I don't remember exactly. And I, you know, I was, I was going to the Michigan Wolverines. Right. And then like, I see this team dismantling before my eyes. I was like, holy shit. I brought all the bad luck. You know, as a bad juju, it's your fault. As a previous BYU football fan who had their heyday, you know, 30 years ago, football luck has not followed me all that much. Yeah. Sean, are you a football fan? Huge football fan. Huge football fan. Although, so my college football team, I'm uh, born into a family of Northwestern Wildcats. So I get the the really fun every 20-year, 10-win season, and then everything else is just miserable. Although we did have we did have a player transfer from Michigan to Northwestern yesterday. He okay. would be one of Northwestern's best recruits ever. So we, we have I that love that to, you follow Northwestern football recruiting. That is like, that's legitimate devotion. <laughs> That's you're, pretty cool. You're ahead of me. So, Sean, you you post constantly. This is actually something that I love about you, and I notice, or you not? I wouldn't say constantly. You post regularly about Hawaii. Yeah, and I, yeah. I love Hawaii. We went on. Kevin doesn't know this, but I was a first year associate. We Kevin and I met at a large law firm. I was a first year associate. Kevin was a senior associate. I took my first trip to Hawaii that year, Kevin, and like legitimately, I almost didn't come back. And what I did, we went to. <laughs> We went to Maui. When I did, I was like clinically depressed for like 30 days. Like I watched the movie Moana like five times. That's how sad I was. <laughs> so I, I love Hawaii and you do too. And tell me about that. Do you, do you guys travel there often or what's the, what's the thing with Hawaii? So Hawaii's Hawaii's interesting. Cause it's, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's also interestingly like located geographically for us. Because, like, I've got family here in the States. My wife is Thai. So she's got family over in Thailand. And her, her parents are here in the States now. But who knows? Like, there's a world where they move back to Thailand at some point. So, like, it actually is really interestingly located from a geographic perspective for us. Of course, it's beautiful and amazing and, like, great quality of life and all of that. But, like, if her family's in Thailand and my family's here in the States, like, split yeah. the difference and, and you live in Hawaii, like, it's not that bad of a deal. This feels like a sales pitch you make to your wife regularly. <laughs> like that was like well-worn. That was a well-worn path. You so I, you're a you're are you a consultant right now, Sean? What? How did you get to the consulting? Talk about the consulting thing. Yeah. So the consulting thing. So I I finished school and was a consultant for a big firm. So I worked for BCG Boston Consulting Group, one of the big ones. That's actually where I met my wife. And I left, joined a startup in Chicago as employee 40. Terrible decision. It was a good people, good startup. Terrible decision on my part. I had three offers from startups when I left BCG because I knew I was going to go work in a startup. I picked the only one of the three to not become a unicorn billion dollar company. And one of, and one of them I was offered, the guy had the offer to be employee number three. So it was a ton of equity. So like, ouch. So you'd be, um, in, you'd be in Hawaii right now. I would be in Hawaii. I would. I would be done. You'd own Lanai. You would have bought it from the Oracle dude. You know, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So all all of those Hawaii posts are just like self-loathing of of the screw up there. (laughs) 
are you fully remote or what's your what's your what's your day-to-day look like i'm fully fully remote so i'm i'm an, an independent consultant now i've had some clients ask me to travel and my answer has been like hey i really don't want to i've got two young kids at home and then the other answer is like yeah you know what okay cool like we can we can do this remote and hey like it it'll cost us two, three grand to fly you out every single week between hotels and flights and everything. Like if if you don't want to travel and we can save that, then sure. Done deal. So I've actually never had to go to a client site in an independent capacity, which is amazing. Including um, I've got a big client that's in downtown Chicago, big fortune 500 and one of the few fortune 500s left in downtown Chicago. Like I haven't even taken the train down to their offices. Not even locally. Not even locally. So, so you, I mean, you obviously started your career in consulting, but you know, big, big consulting is night and day different, right? It's similar to law, right? Go to big law versus hang a shingle, you know, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty diametrically opposed. Was your, was your shift? And, and I certainly don't mean this disrespectfully, but I just, I, I know the way some people think, right? That like, oh, you go become an independent consultant because like, what, you know, you walked away from this job, like what else are you going to do? You know, whatever. Mm. Was it sort of happenstance in the way your career evolved or, or have you always been entrepreneurial minded and kind of, and kind of made a strategic shift for, I want to work, you know, walk my career towards eventually being independent. It was, it's the latter to some extent. So I, I didn't know that I wanted to be an independent consultant, but I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So Got like it. the the exact story was I started a be started my at my past consulting firm. My first day of training, the guy who was doing the training was talking about how like the coolest thing of his entire life and it was amazing and blah 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 is Obama referenced some of his work, not him by name, but some of his work during the State of the Union. And he was like, and the State of the Union draft, like there's a footnote and you can see my name in the footnote <laughs> if you turn to page like six hundred. And he's like, This is the coolest thing ever. And I was like, I really don't want to be a footnote and someone else's speech is like the coolest thing in my life. And like yeah. literally that day in training first day, I was like, this is going to be great for a couple of years, but I'm not staying forever. But I thought I was going to go down the venture back path. So like, that's why I joined the the startup okay. in Chicago and was looking at the other ones. And then one thing kind of led to another where I, now I'm an independent consultant. And your big thing on the independent consultancy is this is doable by anybody, right? Like, You've got, well, and I, I guess I shouldn't say anybody, but anybody with like a unique technical or skill some sort of, yeah. yeah, some sort of niche skill set, you could spin it up and you can consult. Is that, is that true? Yeah. With, that's the thing that I think it's the biggest con- misconception when I speak with people, because when people spin up shingle, like you guys are lawyers, like you literally went to school and passed several tests that allowed you to do what you do. It's, it's different on the independent consulting side like the the example i always give is my my mom my mom's awesome but she's she's a librarian she didn't go to harvard business school she didn't do anything like this my mom i literally helped my mom start up a consulting business as a librarian and she consulted on librarian-esque things to a a company and the first client liked her so much they gave her a a full-time job offer so she took it so she's now (laughs) she got a job out of it and it's it's cool, but again, it's like totally different. Like, how many hours do you think you guys spend in the the law school library studying this stuff to even to go off and, and start it start your own shingle, right? Yeah, a lot. 
Ah, I want them back. As a matter of fact, Sean, you bring it up. Yeah, and it's such an interesting, like your your mom's story is so interesting to me because I I, I feel like, and I don't want to like overly focus on consulting, but I feel like it is such a unique opportunity to use, even as a stepping stone, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about career transition, you talk about the people in the car right now, you know, driving home at 8.30 PM from like a job they hate that are like, how the hell am I going to get out of here? But they're not yeah. sitting on a million dollars to be able to like quit uh-huh. their job and go find the next thing. It, it feels like consulting is such a unique, even if you don't think you want to be an independent consultant forever, it seems like such a great stepping stone to kind of get more reps, get in more doors, meet more people. And then like your mom, you know, I mean, she, she hit the home run on, on consulting gig one, but even if it's consulting gig 22, you know, you, you, you land with your, your, your feet on the ground at a place you love. I mean, do you see that with your clients or your clients mostly, you know, when I say clients, I'm talking about your, your content based stuff where you're talking to people about becoming consultants and things. Do do you see that? Is it stepping stone or is it more like I want to fully transition to this or. So it's, I don't really have kind of like, I don't really like charge people really or do anything like that to, to help people. Well, clients is the wrong word. Yeah. Okay. But, but you know, I, I know what you, I know what you mean. Like for everyone, it's basically a stepping stone because so you're just wait, time out. So Sean, you're just giving this information out for free. Like you don't even have a consultant of consultant practice. If that makes sense. I, I don't. So I, I used to have like a, you can book a calendar call with me. And then I had like 80 people book it. And I was like, okay, I can't do that. So then I put a, a price <laughs> on it and then like 50 people booked it. And I was like, this is still taking up too much time. So I actually even got rid of that. So I, I have no monetization. No so monetization you're just doing this because you're like, Hey, I am passionate about this. It's been meaningful in my life and kind of given me some, you know, different quality of life. And so I'm just going to gratuitously share it and kind of see what happens. Yeah. So I'll tell you exactly what I want to do, which is there's um, like, I, so people who are driving their car, hate hate this. They want to start getting some money. They want to get, start making income quickly. Like the best way to do that in consulting is Upwork. What Upwork. I want to do is I want to, I want to teach people and get people going on Upwork. And then there's a web scraper that you can run that scrapes Upwork profiles, that scrapes the income somebody has made. Cause that's actually technically publicly posted. If you use the scraper anyways, I want to run the scraper across everyone who I've spoken with, helped them get started, whatever, and have a return back a hundred million dollars. Like I want to see that people I helped made a hundred million bucks on Upwork consulting. That's which would be, that's, yeah, that's, that's the goal. Amazing. That's, that's, what, that's cool. what I'm trying to do. So let's, so let's game this out. So you, I think you tweeted today that you had, you believe that someone could make 5,000 bucks by the end of the month consulting through Upwork. Uh-huh. Walk us through concretely what that looks like. Yeah. So and this is exactly what I did where I wasn't driving my car. I was walking home, but I hated what I was doing and I needed money. I was in debt. So I was like, shit, I got to make some what money. Were you, what were you doing at the time? Uh, so I was working, I was working at that startup. I was doing strategy and operations for them. I was bored and I needed money. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start doing this. So Upwork was where I went. And it's basically a matching platform of like jobs that are available and people who want to do consulting jobs. And you can go online, create a profile in five minutes and start pitching on jobs. And you don't need crazy specific. There's like 198 different categories of jobs. Like 
everybody who's listening to this is qualified for one of those 198 categories. Everybody. There's, there's literally everything. Like you could, there's job postings for like, if you want to build like an AI language model, which I'm sure a very small subset of people are available, can do. But there's things like online research, like general virtual assistants. Like there is for very, okay. uh, there's a spectrum of easy to hard yeah. stuff. But you go on, create an account and start pitching. And there's strategy to pitching and how to get the right projects and that sort of thing. But you start pitching on projects, clients say, like your pitch and then hire you and you'll make a couple bucks and then you do it again and then you do it again and then you get a review score and it's like, wow, this person's got, it's out of on a percentage scale. So it's like, this person's a hundred percent review score. I can charge a little bit more because they got good reviews and then they do another project with a little bit more money and then they do another project with more money and then they increase prices again. And is it, you know, is it hard to get that first project? Do you have a supply and demand issue? Or it's, what, it's how, how do you get job number one? Job number one is the hardest job to get by far because yeah. you don't have reviews. So because and you're you're competing against people who do have reviews. So you there's no incentive for a client to hire you if you don't have reviews because they're taking a risk on you when they could get a, a sure commodity in someone else. That's why you like probably don't want to buy go to the restaurant with zero reviews compared to the restaurant that does have reviews. Right. So you need to you need to work your way around it. You need to find a way to get a job where reviews don't matter. And the way that I found that works best and what I did was if you look for jobs that have a keyword like immediate, immediately, ASAP, urgent today, something like that in the description. Interesting. Because use that time per- to your advantage. Exactly. Exactly. Because that. that person doesn't care about reviews. That person needs someone they just need ASAP. A body. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So take, be the first person to apply. You get that job. Great. Do a great and job. You got to crush, crush that first one. You got to crush it. You got to crush the first one. You got to crush the second one, get good reviews. But then suddenly you've got five-star reviews and you can go bid on a project that's paying three, four grand. And it's pretty easy for you to do. So, and, and it's, sorry to cut yeah. you off, Eric. It is the ramp up that and we're going deep on strategy here is the yeah, ramp up that quick i mean you get your first five star review and you're immediately elevating because I, I was curious about this watching some of your content i was so fascinated by the by the theory of like stop trying to compete with the guys with 38 reviews if you're brand new you got to go down and take that 500 dollar engagement or whatever uh-huh. is it literally like that first one the one five star review like all of a sudden or, or is there a a longer ramp up of doing like multiple and slowly incrementing until you're like up there with those top tier guys bidding for the, the big, the big deals. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, very flat. And then your profile review score hits and then it scales up dramatically. What, What I mean by profile is you get a review at the end of each project. And then after you've done, and it's an algorithm that's a black boxy. So it's different for every person. After you've done about five projects and you've got five, 100% 100% review projects, then you get a profile review score where it's like, Kevin is a 100% person because all of his re- reviews are five stars. Once you get that profile review score, that's where things skyrocket. So like, I think you're talking about the Alex video I made. Like I worked with a guy who went from zero to hundred grand made in 50 days. Precisely. Like he, yep. Yeah. So he won three of his first 26 projects. So bid on 26, got three of the first 26, which is about normal hit the review score and then he went, then he made 15 grand the next week and then he made 15 wow. grand the week after that. And then the week after that. And then suddenly before long is that hundred grand. So Sean, I'm driving home from work right now. It's Friday. 
I'm gonna have a pe- I'm gonna have some pizza, and then I'm like, nice. I'm changing my life because I'm sick. I'm not doing another week like I just did. Is it how quickly does this? Wait, wait, Eric. I'm, let's I'm talk. Speaking, let's talk about that. Let's, we, I'm asking, saying, we skipped over a really key part there. <laughs> Sorry, this is a yeah, strong. No, 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 this this is, is an no, I'm talking Eric. in generalities. Let's <laughs> wink, wink, Sean. Text me after this. Because everyone's eating pizza um, on Friday, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, we're having a pizza pie, and then I am leaving the partnership. No, so no, but seriously, so I am. You know, I'm Joe Main Street. I'm driving home today. I I need to I need to make a change. I'm I'm exhausted. You know, I want to find some flexibility in life. I want to be able to work remotely so that I can live wherever I want, move closer to the in-laws, move to Hawaii, whatever, and still make a good living, but but have something different. What do I need to get going? How quickly does this happen? What are the, I'm, gonna, I'm asking a multifaceted question here because I've got a million of them. <laughs> how, how quickly can this get going? Is this something where I can take a job tonight on Friday night and be done by Monday? Or is, you know, can this be done part-time or is it going to interfere with my day-to-day? Like, how do we get, how do we get that ball rolling? Yeah. So the, the way, the way, the rule of thumb that I think about is when you get started and create your account, the goal is 50 pitches in five days, your first five days. If you get, if you get those 50 pitches done based off like conversion rates and all of that, you should win enough projects that will allow you to get that profile review score. At that point, things can skyrocket. So Um, you could, could you quit your job at that point? Five jobs, you've got the profile score. Are you realistically going to be making enough money as a, you know, average, you know, let's say 100k a year American to quit your job. You, you, Hell of you an average, will, Eric. Well, yeah. you don't. I, yeah, that's <laughs> not the you average. Yeah. You know, <laughs> two X right there. Two X. That's like the um, two. That's the two household average, I think. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just yeah. messing. I get it. So I, if you really wanted to, you probably could. I wouldn't recommend that. So like my, my exact trajectory, right, is. When I, when I got started with this, like month one for me was like three grand because I was screwing around and I couldn't figure out the immediate thing. I hadn't figured it out yet. So oh, interesting. month number one for me was like three grand. Month number two was also like three grand because right? I, scre- I was trying everything. I couldn't figure it out. And are, are you working at that time? So this, yeah, that's me side hustling. Me side, side hustling hustle. three grand. Okay. Month four side hustling was like 12 grand side hustling. Month five was like... 40 grand side hustling and then it stuck there for throughout so year one was 500 total bottom line um which wow. is very close to top line because bottom line and top it, yeah. there's cost is minimal in this business yeah a few few uh, software platforms and a computer exactly which yeah. I'm, I'm sure you guys don't have a lot of like inventory turns either we, or overhead or anything like we, that we don't like we're we're like you know move moving over to the law firm i mean we we don't talk about those numbers because like it, it would blow people's minds, the profitability in a remote law firm. Um, That's awesome. if, if you're, if you're kind of tech enabled and forward thinking, it's um, been a yeah, little bit more really expensive be. to keep Kevin supplied with bourbon to keep him going than I thought it was going to be. Originally, <laughs> but other than, than That's where the office expense goes, every... goes to the bourbon. <laughs> I didn't even think about. So with the podcast, I mean, this is a business expense, Eric. I think it is. I, th- oh, I think the entire shelf behind you. <laughs> yeah, between between pizza delivery and bourbon drizzly d- delivery, we our margins are not as juicy as we thought they were going to be, but we're, we're getting by. So let's just get to the elephant in the room, man. I have now gotten through the initial phase. I've got twenty five star reviews. 
how much money, what's the ceiling? How much money can I realistically make here? Yeah. So it, it scales really fast, right? Cause it's basically scaling based off of your time and your time individually. So you can, you can get to 300 to 500 grand in your first year. No problem. Because as long as your capacity is utilized, then you can get there. No problem. The trade-off that comes out from that is it is very hard to scale from 300 to 500 a year. Like that's, you, you'll reach, selling. you'll be, exactly. So like you, you reach your max in less than a year, but that max is basically flat, which is why a lot of independent consultants jump over to this game for five to 10 years. They get a big bump in income. They get some basics going regarding like how to run a business. They're figuring out liability insurance and their LLC and all sorts of garbage. And then what most independent consultants do is they leave five to 10 years later with a million bucks, two million bucks in the bank. They go see you guys to buy a business. They take a job as like a, a VP of a medium sized business somewhere something like that. So this is, it's a, it's a high paying career accelerator, but for very few, is it, is it a long-term career path? Yeah. So you're, so you're telling me I am a librarian and I can spin up a, you know, a, an Upwork and within a year or two, I can be making three to 500 grand within five years. I can have a million bucks in the bank, depending on how I budget. And then after that, I'm kind of, I'm investing, you know, your, your thing is, cash flowing real estate, which yeah. was fantastic until about a year ago, you know? So that's, that's fascinating. What about, let's, let's use Kevin and I as a very concrete example. Could we go out, create an Upwork account and we're, what do we do? What am I doing? I'm an attorney. What, what the hell does my profile look like on, on Upwork? What type of projects am I niche to be able to actually take? Put, a, put aside the obvious, like if someone on Upwork posts, like I need an M&A lawyer to, to help me out. <laughs> Take that off the table. SMB right? focused like, M&A lawyer. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, interestingly, I fit the profile. Like, wow. And if I'm going to Upwork to take those jobs, then I'm like, that's weird. So that's, yeah, that's not at all. Twitter is driving you guys plenty of work right now. <laughs> I was going to say, is Upwork better or worse than Twitter? I'm not. That's the, that's the key question right there. That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I think it's a good one, right? Someone who has a skill set but is maybe mm -hmm. not in love with their job. Say say I don't like M and A, but this is yeah. what I've done for thirteen years. Yeah. I'm really good at it. I've got the credentials. I've got the deal sheet. What else are you going to look at? And you don't have to get like super granular, but just like what are the opportunities? What what are what do you do to go kind of bridge and not throw away your skill set, but maybe start to transition to something? It's so. It's, it's a really interesting question. And I think this is the thing that like people, a lot of people get, have misconceptions on the way, the way I typically think about it is if you've had a full-time job before, like you are qualified to consult for another company in that area or using skill sets that you used at the previous job. So for example, like I was talking to the guy relatively recently who like basically worked at a like venture group as like a very like entry level job at a venture capitalist firm, basically. Yeah. And his job was like reviewing pitch decks and then sending pitch decks he liked to partners. And he's like, I have no skills. I'm, what can I do? And I was like, bro, like you literally review pitch decks all day long. Go sell how to make you pitch decks for people. Like, you know what a good one looks like because you are, you, you review them all day long. That you can absolutely go do that. Or, I mean, that's very one specific niche example. Like you can kind of extrapolate that a little bit more. 
like if we just take a skill of like PowerPoint, for example, there's thousand jobs an hour posted on like, hey, I need somebody to go make a PowerPoint for me for XYZ specific thing. I hire people to do that for me all the time because I need people to make PowerPoints for me. And a, a lot of people are like, hey, I am not a world expert at PowerPoint. It's like, well, my time right now, like I have zero time to today to dedicate to making a PowerPoint, like absolutely zero. So if I could find someone on Upwork who could do a average job, that average job is a thousand percent better than what I could do because I'm not going to be able to get anything done. So I would gladly hire the average person right now at 50 bucks an hour to do this for me because I'm in back to back meetings all day and like I can't get to it. And there's a million examples of that where a lot of the stuff on Upwork is it's not things that are extremely technically complex or that that client themselves actually can't do. It's I don't have time to do it and I need to hire somebody to do it for me for that reason. I love that. Your your leverage, basically. It's all leverage. You take a job for 500 bucks an hour and then you put it right back on Upwork for 250. Is that? I do it constantly. I do it constantly. I, yeah. So I have, I've got a network of about 20 to 30 freelancers that I have now hired on Upwork with niche specific skill sets. So if I need XYZ specific thing done, I'll send it to this guy and I've got backup set up. So like, I will, my primary guy, I'll send it to my primary guy, my primary researcher. He's phenomenal. He's in Pakistan right now. And there's a lot going on in Pakistan right now. He doesn't have internet access. So like I have a backup person that I'm sending the research work to my backup person right now because my primary doesn't have internet access. And once he comes back online, like I'll send the work back to the primary guy. So like I've got people across skill sets and then primaries and backups for all of it, which it's, is kind it's, of, it's genius though, right? Because if I, if I can't get a job because I don't have any reviews, but you can exactly. get it done, then you exactly. can get it and sub it to me and then you can give me a review. Exactly. See, you, you must be a lawyer. Like you, you guys, <laughs> exactly. Like that's the exact I play one. Exactly. I play one on Twitter at least. That's exactly the model. It's so, like, uh, I, Someone can take the job working for me to get a review and then they've so, got their review you, and then they can build how, their own pyramid. But you can scale that way though, right? I mean, you talked a minute ago about how you can't scale yeah. past three to 500. I mean, it feels like that changes that. It's hard though. So 500 is like, I, so I think you can get to call it through two to 300 by yourself. Then, then that, to get to 500, you need these freelancers underneath you supporting. It's really hard to get, from 500 to say for a million because yeah. I'm, I'm basically the concert like guy who orchestra you still have to manage your freelancers. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's quite a bit of work cause I need to know, like I'm keeping a lot in my head right now about like who's doing what at what stage yeah. and when do they need to get back yeah. to me? And, they, and I need to get it back from person a at this point so I can send it to person B and like that sort of thing. The only way to really scale this beyond 500 is, if I hire an alumni from MBB, that's going to cost me 250 bucks, 250 grand a year to do that, which kills my margin. And then I have to go sell more work. And very few independents have tried to scale their firm. And it doesn't really scale very well to like a boutique level. And the hours get worse. Your income goes down. It's it's not a great outcome. I think what you guys are doing in law like works a lot better than what I'm Ooh, doing. Like see, I was actually, I was going to respond and say everything you're saying is resonating heavily with me right oh, now. Oh, okay. Inter- no, t- interesting. Tell me more. Tell me well, more. I mean, 
so the law, first of all, is a bad business, right? I mean, it's you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't have not solicit. It's very relationship heavy. It's, it's, you know, antiquated yeah. practices. The ethics, you know, prevent advertising and solicitation. It's an intentionally bad business. And, you know, it's a service business, right? And scaling a service business yeah. in the first place is tough. But also the yep. law is very equity driven, right? So everybody comes in thinking, hey, I'm going to be a partner and I'm going to take equity in the firm. Well, the problem is you look at the average mid-sized U.S. law firm, right, that has, let's say you're right on the edge of the AMLAW 200, which is the 200 largest law firms. Okay. You probably have 100 lawyers and somebody or a group of people are managing those 100 lawyers, right, which is a massive operation. It is the, an operation equivalent of any other 100 headcount SMB, which is very challenging, $50 million, $100 million yeah. enterprise value organization. The trick is law, law firms are not saleable. You can only sell them to lawyers, lawyers yep. and they're not really scalable for the reasons that I just mentioned. So you're building a, the equivalent of a $100 million SMB that if it was an accounting practice, an individual or a small group of individuals could someday get a liquidity event and make a hundred million bucks uh -huh. in the law firm. That's not the case. You've scaled a hundred million dollar organization and you're still making 500 grand. And the moment you stop working and servicing clients is the moment the cash flow stop. Yeah. That's yeah. my vantage point. And, and frankly, we, you know, we've tried some different things thinking, Hey, you know, let's see if we can break the mold and every, every, coach and consultant we talk to is like, no, no, no. They all tell us to do all the same traditional stuff. And so it's a little bit of a weird business. Yeah. Do you see it differently, Kevin? What's your take? No, I think that's right. I think, and we've been having a lot of talks about this, like your, your scale is limited. Any business where revenue is tied to time, even at scale is going to be limited from commoditized products right in yeah. in terms of its growth uh -huh. potential right like if you're selling a widget you can likely scale several multiples with the same team before you're having to incur additional overhead and additional people uh -huh. and things like that that's not the same in time services based businesses right the 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 additional overhead comes at a very very low multiple to top line revenue and it just it makes figuring out how to scale a services based business like that difficult so yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I see it exactly the same way. It's tough to grapple with as you try and rethink the model because there's so much bad about the business of law. But like the deeper you get in, you start to have these realizations of like, oh, well now, now I see why they've done it that way for 150 years. Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> and there's got to be a better way. But the struggle to figure that out is, is difficult. I think the only differentiator between what you described and what we have is we have massive barriers to entry, right? It's very challenging. Uh -huh. yes. There are some, you know, some suspect actors in our marketplace that like people are giving business to that they probably shouldn't be. So, you know, once you've crossed uh -huh. the, the regulatory barrier, you know, we have pretty low barriers to entry for quality of individual. Yeah. You know, there's no upward yeah. style ranking system. I wish there was. So you could see that some of these guys are like 15-year career prosecutor that now all of a sudden is like, you know, do an M&A, like not a good idea, you know, but clients don't know that because they don't know M&A and they do it once in their life. Yeah. That's it. So, you know, we, yeah. we suffer from a little bit of the same thing, but not to the same extent. That Are you sense. worried at all, Sean, about being deplatformed? I mean, you're really heavily 
tied to Upwork, it sounds like. What happens if Upwork blows up or throws you off or what do you do then? Yeah, so Upwork, I think, is is the launch ground. Like Upwork is where you learn where, where 90% of people should start because it's where they learn like how to sell work to a client, how to negotiate price, how to handle a client who's unhappy, like that sort of thing. Upwork doesn't scale though. Like I, you got to get off Upwork after called three to six months. Um, so oh, for really? me, I, yeah, well, that, I think that's at the point where like you've reached, you've reached like escape velocity basically where you've, you've learned everything you could and you've, you're at the highest possible peak income you can make there. That's when right. you kind of bounce to a different platform. You can use your network. You can use LinkedIn. Like there's a lot of different ways to find independent consulting work. So I guess the, the, sh- the short answer is I'm not terribly worried by it because like eventually you, you kind of bounce out of it. It's, it's kind of like your paid training ground. So you're well past Upwork then at this point. I, I mean, I haven't, I personally haven't taken a project on Upwork in years. I spend oh, a ton of money through Upwork each year, hiring my, my network of freelancers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but okay. I, I, I'm not hiring. I'm, I'm not doing my work on Upwork anymore now. Yeah, that makes that makes more sense. Interesting. Uh, yeah, got it. So let let's just looking at the clock. Let let's pivot for a second, if you don't mind, Eric. I'm, totally. I'm, I'm curious to get back to sort of the entrepreneurial journey, then less nuts and yeah. bolts of of consulting. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about your transition. I mean, you did you did traditional like big consulting. You did startup world. Now you're entrepreneur, you know, what does life for Sean in 2023 look like as compared to life for Sean? I don't, I don't know what year it was. Right. But like back at BCG, for example, so much better, so much better, man. I, uh, it was a leading question. I, I it was a leading, it's a leading question and you knew where the answer was going to be, but it is, <laughs> it's worth reiterating for that person who's driving home and like hates what they were doing at the office today. Like, yeah, like it, Life gets so much better on the back end. Like big I consulting, you we keep saying the person driving home. If there really is somebody listening to this, they're like at this point, they're like, guys, like, leave me alone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, like guys, I saw, I was seen for a minute. Now I feel stalked. Yeah, <laughs> I feel highly annoyed. Sorry, please continue. Sean. Yeah, no, it's it's a good ad. Yeah, so it's funny because like so in big consulting, you travel Monday through Thursday. Like you're on the road every single week, which is really cool okay. when you're young and in your twenties and whatever. And like my first day with my now wife was a free weekend down in Miami, South Beach with her. Cause like we had the points and it was great. Yeah. So like you could do really cool stuff with it. But on the back end, like it's kind of terrible. Like I had one manager who was a night owl. So he's like, we're only taking the 1145 flight back to Chicago every Oof. week. And I was like, you're killing me, man. Like we would land at like one in the morning and there's and like one guy. That means you're working more too, right? Cause you're working. Presumably you're still working those evening hours also. Yeah, you you work more hours. It's just the whole thing is, was kind of a mess, but it's awesome now. Like I've got I've got a almost three year old. We go walks in the morning. We call them buddy walks. It's great. I make them pancakes in the morning. Like, and I, I'm I'm making more money. I'm working less hours, and I get to spend time with my kids. Like it's it's kind of hard to beat this yeah. this like solopreneur path to use the Justin Walsh term or like creating a like boutique firm like you guys have done like i mean assuming your lives are a lot better than they were back at big law i mean comparatively <laughs> to big law sure right I we, mean, we both <laughs> take a deep breath 
Oh, Sean. <laughs> well, we, we, we've got a lot on our plate, right? Because we've got legal work to do and a business to run, which is two jobs. Mm-hmm. But no, but unquestionably, right? Like the distinction is big law and, and I think big corporate generally is it's unpredictable. It's outside your control. There's no ability to say no. There's no flexibility. You know, I woke up yesterday and my wife and my four-year-old were sick, like really sick. And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to the office today. You know, I office up the street yeah. and I stayed home. Good luck doing that in corporate. Yeah, there's no way. You know what I'm saying? There's just no way I could, okay, all of a sudden I'm just going to decide to work for my living room, you know, and take care of my kids. Like it would have been, it would put a lot more stress on, on them. And, you know, and there's days where it's just like, okay, if I want to take a day off, I take a day off and it is what it is. We have client demands and we, you know, hit deadlines and meet them and whatever else. And we've got people to answer to. I think part of, I always tweet about people's interest in time control. You know, there's this big uh-huh. thrust towards, I want my life back. I'm sick of sitting in traffic. I'm sick of being told what to do. And I always uh-huh. get the pushback where it's like being an entrepreneur does not mean total control of your time. You know, like. If anything, it's more work. And the answer is like, yeah, I mean, obviously, like you, especially now it's all up to you, right? Like the institution yeah. that you used to you know, be a part of was self-sustaining. You're an individual and if it fails, you know, if you fail, it fails and your income fails. So obviously that is mm-hmm. a different thing, right? But you also have complete control. If I don't want to take a client, I don't like the way they're talking to me or I don't like what they're asking from me or I don't think that the work is in the right place i just say no and i don't have to check with yeah. anybody like kevin doesn't check with me we don't check with the other members of our firm we treat each other with respect and we do what we gotta do but you know we've got that level of of life yeah. autonomy back and you know going home on friday right and knowing that no matter what happens this weekend nobody's telling me anything you know if a client needs something like i'll take care of business you know but it used to be i had a partner in big law actually once and said I asked him the question point blank. I said, how do you deal with the unpredictability of it? And he said, you know, I used to have like Saturday afternoon plans and I'd spend kind of all week thinking about it. Like, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And he's like, and then one day you just, you just kind of stop making the plans. And, <laughs> I, and you're like, wait, no, I'm that's like, backwards. That's not the answer, you know. That's the answer. That's your answer. Keep you chilling, know? man. He started like it was like the solution, and you know what? For his yeah. life, to eat your own, that's great for him. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's he's wildly successful. He makes tons of money. He's seemingly happy. The same guy, though, I will tell you, we got a Christmas card. I tweeted about this Christmas card once. We get the Christmas card. It's this long update about the family. I wish I still had it. Maybe we took a picture of mm-hmm. it because it was noteworthy. And it's like the daughters are doing this, the wife is doing that. And then at the very end, in like a, because it was one of those like Noel, N O E L. And then like yeah. at the very end of the L, it was like, and Rob has been servicing his clients in mergers and acquisitions transactions or like something like this very, um, yeah. like it was written by her. She doesn't even really put it on the tombstone, man. That's the way yeah. to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he was just actually like he, your footnote earlier that you talked about. Like yeah. he was yeah. like a footnote in his family's yearly update. And it was sad. It was sad. Like that. That's like, sad. Reading it, it was a palatable feeling of sadness for this man. It's, it's kind of the same. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, so are you, are you like way less stressed now that you work for yourself and stuff? And I'm like, no, no, not at all. Right. Like, mm-hmm all the stress is there. If not, it's a little more stressful, right? Cause like 
my family's counting on like everything going right, but it's so different than, than that type. And, and I, I mean, going down the like story lane before I left big law, like one of my last straws, it was a birthday weekend. We had a, a charity event that we piggybacked off of that my wife was working. And so we like made a weekend about it. I literally, we literally scheduled one thing where we had like, we had a weekend to like do whatever, but timing was open. I knew I had a deal going on. We had one thing scheduled and the client of course wanted to talk on Saturday and the, you know, communicating with the partner. When can we have this call? I was like, Hey, I can make any time work. This was literally my birthday. I can make any time work except, you know, one to two o'clock or whatever it was because we've got something planned. And I literally got an email back two minutes later of like, Oh, we won't have left the, I, I don't remember what it was. Right. But like, we won't have gotten on the road from the ranch yet. So that time doesn't, you know, other times don't work. We're going to have to do it at one o'clock. I had like had to cancel like the one thing my wife went and I'm like, like that is such a different type of stress. It is. That's yeah. like, I, I'm, yeah. I'm just not, I'm not interested. I, yeah. I don't mind the pressure of having to perform for my clients. I do mind the pressure of having to answer to someone with unreasonable expectations when it's not like yeah. fundamentally moving the deal in, in an important way. Anyway. I mean, let's quantify it then, right? Like, so you guys are running your own business right now. Like, let's say you make like one X. What would the multiple have to be for you to go back and take a job at 2X or a job for you at Big Law? Would it be 2X? Would it be 10X? Like, just so people understand, because like both are stressful, it sounds like. How do quantify the difference? Well, I think that's what's so interesting and why I love this conversation about like taking a skill set to monetize independently. Like, I mean, you could make up some like stupid number and say a thousand X, like, yeah, I'd go yeah. back for a thousand X, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But, but in realistic terms, I really don't think there's a multiple yeah. Yeah. because I would rather make $400,000 for the rest of my life and own my, right, own my schedule, my time with my wife, my time with my kids, what I'm doing on the weekend, what clients I'm taking, then go make $2 million reporting to someone having to cancel the birthday plans having to not make saturday like at some point you get to a level and and like we're talking from like a ridiculous place of privilege and i get that right but when you get to that point right the the return's just not there for me i mean the 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 multiple would have to be so stupid to 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 give this but kevin i think it's broader than that though right because the, the the old adage is like the person who's been self-employed like becomes unemployable and it's true right like if you're actually an entrepreneur and not everybody is right like you should go do something before you endeavor to be an entrepreneur you should go do something like a culture index or one of these things we did a culture index and i thought it was fantastic i was skeptical going in and i think we all kind of were blown away like almost needed like a cigarette afterwards to take the edge off it was so <laughs> intense you know so I do think like before you endeavor to do something like this, you should certainly, you know, find out whether or not you're that type of person. And maybe only through the experience can you really understand it. But once you know that, hey, I'm an entrepreneur, like I need that control. Like I can't be like I as an individual can no longer be in an institution. Like you can't put me in a chair and tell me to be there from nine to five and tell me that my income is going to be a hundred dollars. And no matter what I do, it's not going to be ninety nine. It's not going to be a hundred and one. Like I will die. Mm-hmm. Not physically, but I will die spiritually in that job. 
And so that job could be a, you know, million dollar a year gig and I will be dying spiritually and be totally unfulfilled in the role. And that sounds crazy to say, but I, I really think that that's just the person that you are. And when you see people who are entrepreneurs as W2s, they really struggle and they've got a lot of career movement. They've got a lot of different places on their resume and it looks chaotic because they're searching for something within the W2 institution because they're afraid that they don't realize mm-hmm. actually doesn't exist within the institution. It exists within yourself. And that's the having the self drive. And I really need to know when I wake up in the morning that I have unlimited potential. And that mm-hmm. gets me going. If you told me, Hey, Eric, like in big law, it was like very high income. You know, we had like a couple hundred thousand bucks a year and then a really big bonus. Like in, you know, your later years, it's hundred thousand plus at the end of the year. It wasn't enough for me to know that no matter what I do for 12 months, that the only upside is going to be this one tranche of cash at the end of the year, like on a quarterly basis, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, like getting out of the bed and feeling motivated to like get on a call at 11 PM on Sunday night and take down the distress energy company. Like it just didn't, it it was, I was dying spiritually. I didn't realize that until I got out. So anyways, I'm over talking, but the, the, the short answer is there's just no amount of money. It really is. What about, what about you, Sean? If McKinsey comes calling, like what's the number? (laughs) I, I, Sean's like, so Sean's like 200. I did 200. <laughs> <laughs> That's a drop, man. I don't know. I, so I, I have the similar answer where like, I, I don't think there is. And I, I ask this question actually quite a lot to people who've been in similar shoes as us for, for a while. And the answer is almost always like, they give me a billion dollars. Like, yeah, I'm, like if there's something nonsensical, I'm going to do it. But the answer is almost always like, it's not worth it for me. And I think the, the the underlying message through all of it is there's a point at which people reach a level of financial success as an independent consultant, as lawyers, as whatever it is, where they're in control of their time and they're making enough that they are comfortable and their family is comfortable. Whether like, you know what, like I'm just, there, there's no number where it's worth giving up. They've almost detached themselves from the idea of, of wanting money and wanting more. So for example, like, so I went to Wharton, like really, really good business school. I, I, I won a couple awards while I was there for like various things. But basically the, the reason why that matters is for about 18 months, I was the school's like poster child of like, here's one of our cool students. So when like the billionaire donors and the like fortune 500 CEOs came to school, like I was the poster child student and they trotted out to go meet those people and be like, look at our great students, we're out as a check. So like why, I, why, I spent a why lot was of that time. What was the element that they liked about you? There's like one program that the school is known for. It's a class called Manager 100, where it's, it's basically students consult for a local nonprofit and there's a big, long thing. But I was one of like the team advisors for that. And I was the highest ranked in the program and then the highest ranked in Wharton's history. So like there was a lot of context, but basically like I was the poster child because of the rankings from the Management 100 program. And what was interesting is when I was there, when I was a student, I would meet these people and I would be like, you know what? Like I saw that guy on CNBC last week. He's smart guy, interesting guy saying cool things. But now that I've spent a dinner sitting across the table with him, talking to him, like, I think I can hang with him. Like, I think I can be him. Like, I didn't think he was so ridiculously impressive that I just couldn't do it. If I put in the hours, put in the work, shit, I want to try to do this. I want to try to be a CEO. I want to try to be yeah. the, a billionaire entrepreneur. I want to try to do all these things. And then you actually start seeing like what the work that is involved to do so 
the exact thing that we're trading off here, that we're talking about here. And you're like, you know what? Like the trade-off for going for that is not actually worth it compared to making an income where my family's comfortable and taking buddy walks with my thumb in the morning. Like there's no, yeah. there's no price tag that's actually worth it for me to try to make that jump, even though that's how I thought I wanted to do. And I, I had examples that would be like, hey, I think I could try to make that jump. Interesting. So what I mean, the, the question I want to ask, and I think it dove, dovetails nicely on, on that point, Sean, is talk to a second, the, the, that person in the car, right? That's, <laughs> that's driving home from Dude, if that person in the car is still commuting at, after all this. <laughs> you're age. doing it wrong. You really need to be listening to this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is, you know, driving home from a $60,000 a year career that's hearing this Wharton grad or this Michigan and Duke law grad talking about six figure salaries and like, yeah, just go consult and you can, you don't need a million dollars cause you can make $400,000. That's just like, you guys yeah. are out of your damn minds, yeah. right? Like yeah. I've been repairing HVAC systems for the last nine years. I'm burnt out. You know, I, you know, I can't even af afford a new car payment, let alone turn down a million dollar job. Like, right this is clearly not for me, right? I mm -hmm. can never go do Upwork and consult. I can never go be an entrepreneur. Talk, talk to a second, a little bit of that demographic shift and, and how yeah. you kind of address those concerns of like, yeah, you don't have to have the McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group or Kirkland and Ellis law background to like really make a, a, a difference in your, your financial and professional life like this. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, to improve your financial position, like at the end of the day, it all comes down to make more money, right? Like the median income, we referenced it earlier, it's in the 50, right. $50,000 range. Like step one is make more money. And okay, how do you do that? There's three different ways. Way number one is you start making more money at work, which means you get a raise or a promotion. And yep. it's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 5% a year if you're lucky. Like very hard to materially and quickly increase your income there. Path number two is to upscale and get new skills, do something like Bloom Tech or something like that, learn to code and get a completely different job in a completely different industry that just pays a lot more. Incredibly time intensive. There's cost associated with that. And like coding is not for everyone. It's not for me, that's for sure. So it, there's pro structural problems with that one. Or path number three is what can you do today to find a way to make some extra money on the side? And if you're making 60 grand a year and you want to get to six figures, like, okay, you need to make $40,000 extra a year to do that. Like we're talking, what, that's $3,333 a month extra that you need to make. Like, okay, what, what can you do to get to that point? For me, like I went on Upwork. Yes, I had some labels on my name. That being said, my first jobs were proofreading emails. It was the immediate, immediate jobs. I was proofreading, proofreading emails okay. and like, that's, that's what I was doing. And I was proofreading emails for business owners who didn't speak English or English wasn't their first language. Like literally there's literally close to a billion people in this world who are qualified for that job because English was their first language. So doing, t taking the path of like, how can I make an extra three grand on the side? And then like, what are some things that I can do to do that? For me, it was Upwork. Sweaty startup has a lot of other thoughts on what are some things that he could do and people can do to make money on the side. But if those are your three different paths, I think that option number three, make the three grand on the side is the easiest way to do it. I love, I love that. Absolutely love that. You know, I, 
It, it, Kevin, your question is such a good one though, because we have to always remember that I had a, a buddy that I was having a conversation recently with about financially. And I said, I, I said to him point on, I said, honestly, man, it sounds like you need to make more money. You know, you like, that's uh-huh. the solution. Like you just need to make more money. And he, he looked at me, he was like, I don't want to. He was like, I would have to give something up for that. And I don't want to give up my time and I want to enjoy more of my time. So nope. And, I, and like my head was like, like I wasn't programmed for that response, you know, <laughs> like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, you know, so yeah. Anyways, important element of the discussion here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sean, I love chat GPT. Or <laughs> I, do, I do on Twitter at least. It's the, I, I guess the Twitter hive's going. Yeah, it gets, it, yeah, it kicks the beehive. It, you know, it's cross-discipline tweeting. But anyways, <laughs> I, I love, I, you know, I love the idea of it. It's a very useful tool. How is it? This feels like the category or one category in particular that is highly susceptible to impact from AI. Like, one, are you seeing that? And two, how how do you exploit it? How do we take advantage of it? Yeah, it's interesting. I was interviewed by Forbes actually about this like a week or so ago. I'm like, how really? how AI would impact it? Yeah, it was it was a fun conversation. So there's a lot of different there's a lot of different cuts to it. I actually don't think AI is going to be that relevant and the higher paying areas in the consulting space. There's certainly spaces where it could be. For example, my first jobs are proofreading emails. Like I would imagine ChatGPT can do that as well, if or not better than I could at a much lower cost. But something like, I don't know, SAP data cleaning for a consolidation of two different plants from an M&A activity, like that is not going to be done by ChatGPT. Like you screw up your SAP data and then you are in a world of hurt. So like I, those higher paying jobs, I think are going to be fine. Where I think people have been using ChatGPT pretty effectively is to get rid of the like slow day to day, like minutia of consulting. Like for yeah. example, I talk about like communication with your clients important, like email updates, here's what's going on, here's the plan for the next couple of days, roadblocks, that sort of thing. Like I know some consultants who spend like an hour to a day just drafting emails of like, here's where I'm at. That yeah. feels like you easy loading in, for chat GPT. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, the use cases are, I have mixed reviews. I think it's fantastic for some things like that. Mm. It's not, it's not quite a, the deep thinker that they want you to think it is yet. Yeah. Um, mm. And I, I, I believe wholeheartedly it'll get there, but, but we'll see. We actually, we got a request from Bloomberg law for an interview on chat GPT as well. So the, the big, the big publications are also, wanting to cross-discipline engagement bait. So fun times. Well, it's, it's also an interesting dovetail in our last conversation too, because I, I, I love your point and I think it's absolutely true that it's going to affect different layers and sectors of, of the labor market. And, and as folks start to tap into that and use it to their advantage, that's one of those tools that can move you higher in that labor market, right? A- away from some of the skills that ChatGPT may be replacing where you can use ChatGPT as a as an enhancement to kind of increase your profile because there's stuff it's not going to replace, right? Like they talk about AI making legal oral arguments. Like at, at the end of the day, if you're in a jury trial, like that, I mean... Who knows? I don't We're want my way too philosophical. Maybe AI. AI gets there, but you have to have that ability to 
storytell and use body language in front of a jury, right? Like they're just, you know, anyway. I, it's a great, I'm, I'm that's a great a use case though, because it can spot logical fallacies. There's been a few instances where I've been having tweet conversations and I'll put my response in and I'll say, are there any logical fallacies in this response? And it'll tell me that it's an overgeneralization or, you know, an ad hominem. Mm. I get a lot of ad hominem. I'm kidding. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> but yeah, I can actually spot those. So it's like a really, it's a really clever system. Yeah. But Sean, you're big on YouTube, man. One, tell us about your social media strategy. And then two, plug, plug your YouTube. Yeah. So social media strategy, YouTube, honestly, the whole thing has been like an accident. There was no, there was no clear strategy to any of it. One of the killer downsides of what I'm doing, the solo consulting thing is like, I don't have colleagues that I chat with on a day-to-day basis, really. I've got clients, but that's different. So like Twitter was literally just like my colleagues. It was the equivalent of me talking, shooting the shit, the guys around the water cooler. That's like literally what it was. And then it just kind of started growing and I was like, all right, so I'll just, I'll tweet a little bit more and try to share like more structured framework around what I'm doing. YouTube was also kind of like a fun hobby type thing. I'll I'll give you the actual like legit story on it. Catalan, which is one of the platforms that I do consulting through, they raised a bunch of money. They hired a fancy PR firm that was trying to get articles like about Catalan written and some of those national public, you've probably seen the articles that are like, this 26 year old is making $300 an hour doing like this XYZ thing. Catalan was trying to get those articles written about themselves. And they asked me to be the person who was like featured in the articles and the publications passed because it was all, it was basically a puff piece for Catalan. But what was interesting was they asked for my tax returns to verify my income. And I was like, holy shit, these articles are way more legit than I ever thought they were because they're verifying it with tax returns. So I had one of my freelancers go through, scrape all of the articles and basically plot like how much everyone is making and how many hours they're working. And I have filtered on like lowest hours, highest income. And like the top 10 were all YouTubers. I was like, shit, like I'm going to make use of YouTube videos for fun. Like, why not? And I was like, and the and the worst case scenario, it's a fun hobby. And the best case scenario, it makes me a ton of money. It's more fun hobby than anything else really at this point. But Kevin, it's cool because uh, no, it has upside. Note to self here. Let's put this on YouTube. <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you, how do, well, I guess we don't need to get too much into YouTube, the business of YouTube, but that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that's really interesting. Is that your, your biggest priority? would you say outside of actually doing the consulting work is growing a, a YouTube channel or what, what are you trying to do? Biggest priority. Number one is family by far. Number two, consultant. <laughs> number two is consulting in my existing clients. Number three is, is helping, helping people on, on the getting started in consulting, which sometimes that's Twitter. Sometimes it's newsletter. Sometimes it's YouTube. I'm, I'm still experimenting to try to figure out what that is. Like I told you guys earlier, like I want to run that scrape where it'd be like, $100 million was made with people on, on Upwork. I am experimenting on how to do that in a bigger group setting. So on the YouTube side of things, like I have that video of the guy who, who went from zero to 100 grand in 50 days. I've done that actually four times now. That was the only one that we filmed. But I've done that quite a bit. So like I, I know it's a repeatable process. I know how to get someone on a one-on-one setting to big money on consulting. What I don't know how to do it is in a group setting. So actually right before this call, I was with on a phone call of six people 
where I'm trying to do it in a group setting and get people to their first 10 grand, 10 grand in like 10 days or something like that. And we'll see if I can successfully do it there. And eventually I'm just going to try to keep scaling up, scaling up, scaling up, scaling up until I can figure out how to do it probably through social media in a, in a larger scale setting. I love it. I love it. And then priority number six is convincing your wife to move to Hawaii. So there's that. That's, that's the plan. That's the plan. (laughs) Honestly, Um, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think I think it'll be. Uh, if I had to guess, it's going to be Charleston. That's that's most likely. But uh, Hawaii would be pretty sweet. Charles Charleston's probably what it's going to end up being. Yeah, it's another great place. Well, I guess we'll we'll wrap up, Sean. Anything that you want to plug, promote, talk about? Feel free to have the stage for a second. No, no, I, no plugs, no promo. I don't, I don't, I don't really make money doing any of this. This is just kind of fun stuff for me. So if you want to, you want to get in touch, send me a DM on Twitter and I'll eventually get back to it. There's quite a few in there, but I'll eventually get back to it. What, what's your handle, Sean? At Sean O'Dowd 15, I think. I don't actually know why the 15, why, why it was 15, but I'm Sean O'Dowd 15 on Twitter. Awesome. There were 14 Sean O'Dowds that beat you, maybe. Yeah. 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 Something like that. <laughs> They've already scaled up. Thanks for being on, Sean. Yeah, yeah guys, awesome time. chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.